Welcome to this edition of Community Matters Podcast on issues important to community associations. My name is Tony Campisi, Executive Director of Community Associations Institute's Pennsylvania and Delaware Valley Chapter. The topic for this episode is fair housing in community associations. This topic comes up very often in questions from community associations, homeowners, and managers. My guest today is Edward Hoffman, Esquire, a partner and co-founder of the law firm Barrow Hoffman, with offices in Warminster and Center Valley, Pennsylvania. Ed regularly represents and counsels homeowner associations, condominiums, and planned communities on a full range of issues, including litigation, governing document drafting, amendments and revisions, transition issues, covenant enforcement, assessment violations, and, and collections. Ed is also a member of CAI's Pennsylvania Legislative Action Committee and speaks frequently at educational programs on issues important to community associations. Welcome, Ed. Let's start with the obvious question. What fair housing laws apply to community associations? Well, there are a bunch of laws that apply, and they range from state laws and local laws. Primarily what we're dealing with in this realm is federal law. And most of these cases, uh, the vast majority, are filed in federal court uh, because the federal law that applies is the Civil Rights Act, Title VIII of the Civil Rights Act. And specifically for our purpose, it's the part of the Civil Rights Act is the Fair Housing Act. So we refer to it as the FHA, not to be confused with the Federal Housing Administration, which is the mortgage people. The agency, right. Correct. So in a nutshell, the the Fair Housing Act makes it illegal to discriminate against somebody uh, or to interfere, threaten, coerce uh, a fair housing right or uh, limit their right to housing based on a protected class. And when you're dealing with federal law, uh, it's protected class is the key. And the protected classes in, in general include race, color, na- national origin, religion, or sex, which, uh, which is gender. The other laws that apply, state and local, can take it beyond what federal law is. They just can't lessen the requirements under federal law. So for instance, Philadelphia, Allentown, Bethlehem, uh, those type of cities have their own local municipal laws and they expand the bases uh, that apply for fair housing claims. So those are stricter, more strict than the federal. Well, they add they add protected classes essentially. Okay. okay. The 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 the, uh, the legal implications are the same, but they add more protected classes to give more people protection under the law. Uh, there was Fair Housing Amendments Act of 1988. It added two more protected classes. One's familial status, and the other one is individuals with disabilities. Uh, familial status is just what it sounds like. You can't discriminate against uh, families or who have children under the age of 18. Actually, pregnant women are also included in that. Um, exemptions to familial status would apply uh, in an age-restricted community in our world. So an over 55 age-restricted community uh, would be exempt from the familial status issues because by nature they discriminate against right. people under They're- 55 but there's a whole myriad of things they have to do to qualify for that. Uh, A disability under the FHA is a mental or physical impairment that limits your major life activity, Uh, and that's really the biggie for community associations. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. 
So what types of uh, fair housing discrimination do you typically see under the FHA or can occur? Well, HUD uh, is the agency that's charged with looking into these types of complaints and dealing with fair housing issues. And HUD's interpreted FHA to essentially include two types of discrimination, uh, disparate or disparate treatment and disparate impact. Treatment is basically discrimination that occurs uh, when you treat someone differently because of their race, color, sex, religion, national origin, familial status, or disability. It's really overt discrimination and involves intentional bias. And as you can imagine, those claims are far and few between because uh, it's a smoking gun kind of thing. You know, you, your claim is they discriminated against me because of my race or because of my religion, and you have to be able to establish that. Uh, the other type of claim, which is more frequent for community associations these days, is the uh, disparate impact claim. And essentially, that's a policy or procedure issue. And it's, the, it, the impact involves discrimination by, by a different impact, when a neutral policy or procedure has a disproportionately negative impact on a protected class. So these claims shift the focus away from intent and go to what the impact is on the class of people, the protected class of people. And this is really the growing phenomenon across the nation, not just in our industry, but also in multifamily housing and the apartment world. Um, and the Supreme Court of the, United, of the United States recently just confirmed that such claims are actually cognizable under the Fair Housing Act. It was kind of left out. Nobody knew what the Supreme Court was going to do, and they did confirm that you can bring these types of claims under the Fair Housing Act. There was an argument that the Fair Housing Act didn't, didn't account or the intent wasn't to uh, include these types of claims. This kind of stemmed more from the employment law world. And those type of impact claims uh, came out of employment law and EEOC, and now they're applied in the fair housing world. So what it means to associations, importantly, uh, is although they may not intend to discriminate against the class or group of people uh, through a policy or practice, the HUD may still find a violation of FHA still occurring if, it, if a policy has a disproportionately negative impact on a protected class. And some examples, you're probably looking at me thinking, what are you talking about? Some examples include criminal background checks, rental restrictions, credit checks, adoption of policies related to restrictions on children for swimming, bicycles, anything related to parental supervision. These are things that have already been litigated around. So it, it, from what you've said, it sounds like this is a more recent development, uh, these types of cases. Well, th there are all types of fair housing complaints that have been made to HUD. Uh, fiscal year 2016, uh, the report actually came out in 2017. HUD published its annual report on fair housing. The biggie was uh, housing discrimination complaints. Uh, there, are, there were 8,342. Statistically, disability was number one. That was the big one. And disability is what we talked about. Uh, 4,908 complaints or about 59%. So that makes up the vast majority of the complaints. Um, and I think it's because of the additional protections afforded under uh, the FHA for people with disabilities, for reasonable accommodations, reasonable modifications, accessible design and construction. And we'll talk about that in more detail. Uh, real briefly, race was the second most common basis. Uh, national origin and familial status were third and fourth, and the final ones were sex and retaliation claims. So as you can see, the vast majority is really what 
we see on a daily basis, which are the disability complaints. So is it fair to say that's the most uh, common fair housing complaint in a community association? Yes, disability complaints are the most common, um, and specifically there are two types of complaints. Uh, one is reasonable accommodation, and a reasonable accommodation complaint made under the FHA uh, for a disability involves a change to a, or exception to a rule or policy to allow someone who owns a unit or lives in a unit to have equal opportunity to use it and enjoy the unit. Um, the reasonable accommodation basically has to be provided when it's necessary to, to allow the person to do that. There's an entire litmus test that goes through with, that you go through with to figure out if it's uh, burdensome on the association uh, financially or administratively or even on the structure of the unit, et cetera. But we have to ensure that the associations comply with the request. The owner seeking it actually has to request the accommodation, a lot of times, if they don't even request the accommodation, there's nothing for the association to do. Uh, but formally, they have to request the accommodation. And the key is whether or not a requested accommodation imposes undue financial or administrative burden or financial or fundamentally alters the nature of a policy is determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Because for one association, it might be more of a problem for them to do something than for another. Uh, what are some examples of accommodations? Well, things we talk about all the time in our industry. Animals, right? That's probably the number one right now. Pets, you mean? Well, service animals, or, or rather, uh, animals, accommoda accommodation animals under the FHA aren't pets. Okay. So that's rule number that's one. That's a good distinction. Rule number one is they're not pets, they can't be considered pets. So you can't ask for a pet deposit. You can't treat them like pets. Even if you have a no pet policy, federal law trumps it meaning it's not a pet, it's an animal. Right. So service animals are just what you would imagine. They're trained to perform tasks. Um, it's, they use the ADA definition, which doesn't, the ADA doesn't really apply to associations outside the scope of allowing public access to a facility. But the definition of uh, service animals is applied there, and it performs tasks for someone with a physical, intellectual, or mental disability, and it allows them to do something. Uh, by the way, owners are not required to provide proof of training or certification of animals. Sometimes associations say, I want to see the dog certification. Uh, the law says you don't have to. The other one, and this is probably the, the biggie as far as what's happening now, emotional support or companion animals. Um, it's been a, an explosion in my experience over the last five years, and they provide therapeutic benefit to someone with a mental, psychiatric, or emotional disability and don't require specific training. And by the way, as you know, people have requested emotional support ducks. They've requested emotional support, you name it. If, if the treating physician, social worker, psychologist, uh, whoever the treating professional is says that this animal is of benefit for the person and will allow them to live a normal life in the unit and you can establish a reasonable nexus in it and it's supportable, uh, it's very difficult to overcome that. And going back to pets, um, you can't request a pet fee or deposit, same with an emotional support animal either, it's not a pet. And one thing that the association should know is if the animal, whether it's a service dog or animal or an emotional support damages the common element in any way, of course the people can be held responsible because it's treat, be treated like any other animal. 
that's permitted. So a uh, qu quick question before you move on about uh, back to the issue of pets versus animals. If, if, because what you said is, is uh, stood out to me that the owner does not need to provide certification uh, of training or certification that the animal is a, uh, a comfort animal, or service, service animal. dog, yeah. Right. So is it fair to say um, some owners will attempt to bypass pet rules by claiming their pet is a service animal, and does the association even have the right to investigate that? Well, typically, that if that type of of um, situation would were to occur, it usually would occur with the emotional support animal, because the emotional support animals are are least are less restrictive to qualify. Service animals really serve a specific purpose. I mean, you see people walking with a, a German Shepherd or a Lab. And the dog is, you know, picking things up for them, stopping, right. doing tasks for them. The emotional support animal is a totally different issue. And what they have to provide is a note from a provider of some kind okay. or, or a letter from a provider typically. And uh, associations have run afoul of, around the country, have run afoul of uh, the, the, uh, the Associations around the country have run afoul of the law in this area by questioning the uh, notes or doctor. And it's more of a, if they are persistent about it and keep denying the claim and say this doesn't apply and they're acting like they're the physician uh, and they're questioning the disability, that's when they get slammed by the Okay, court. right, right. That's what, I wanted to, that's what I wanted to get at. Right, and so moving on from animals, parking issues are number two. Uh, requests for assigned or relocated parking spaces are probably number two. And it's the same situation. You have to show there's a disability. You have to show that there's a nexus. The provider would have to say it. Uh, whether or not they have to grant the request really depends on what type of parking that exists in the community. Uh, if they have unassigned parking in a common area, for instance, they have to accommodate the request by the disabled resident uh, to use a spot closest in proximity uh, or wide enough to to accommodate an accessible van. Um, if they have assigned parking, they, sh they have to s seek uh, to accommodate the request by reassigning parking spaces between owners, hopefully voluntarily, if someone would agree to do that. Uh, but if they have deeded parking spaces or parking in limited common, then the association has no obligation or legal authority to take away parking spaces reserved to another unit. But if another unit owner would agree, be a totally different voluntarily situation. yeah right. the, the key is the association has to make a reasonable effort to comply and to actually further request for the uh, the parking space as an accommodation uh, the number three thing I see is hoarding if you can believe it hoarding is kind of a hot issue because we have a lot of hoarders in our communities um, and it used to be more of a, uh, a nuisance issue more than anything else but now it's the uh, FHA is recognizing it as a disability. It's a mental or OCD kind of thing, and it's treated as a mental illness by psych by psychologists and psychiatrists. So uh, there there are problems with hoarding in communities because what do you do with a hoarder when it presents a danger to your neighboring, especially in a condominium, let's say, and to your neighboring owners? Um, some more recent governing documents actually give associations the right to enter. Uh, to remedy matters of health concern, uh, which might include hoarding. So that's a really important topic. I mean, it, it could present 
present a danger to the building and to the to the neighbors, as you said, especially in a in a condo setting. Does that's a real big uh, area of that we might see a lot more issues on down the road if it's now hoarding is now considered a disability. Does the association even have the right to go in and clean out or force the unit to be cleaned out? Well, that's the issue. So the issue becomes your your documents may allow you to do it. So my take on it would be uh, the association couldn't, obviously, you don't just go enter a unit and start throwing boxes in right. a dumpster or newspapers or whatever it might be, right? You have to get leave of court. But it's a sensitive issue because there might be a disability involved right. here. So this is more of a proactive issue to ensure protection of the other people in the community, which they have an obligation to do. Uh, public health and safety is paramount to the community. So explain for us the difference between a reasonable accommodation and a reasonable modification. Sure. So an accommodation, is, well, uh, a modification is a structural change, essentially, made to premises uh, that's occupied or to be occupied by a person with a disability in order to afford them full enjoyment of the premises. Um, basically, examples of it would be uh, ramps out front to let them get into the door, whether on, on a common area or right to the door itself. Um, chair lifts if they live in a condominium and there's no elevator, things that would allow them to do it. Another one would be a pool lift, putting a lift in, if you've seen the pool lifts. Right, to for handicap to access. Right, altering a walkway to provide access to a public or common use area, et cetera, if there's no, um, if there's no cutout on the curb, those are modifications. Uh, accommodations, on the other hand, are um, policy changes, exceptions, or adjustments to a rule policy, practice, or service. So the accommodation is we need the the accommodation would be in a, in a pet or an animal situation. You have me saying pet now. In an, animal, in an animal situation, the accommodation would be we're going to allow, even if we have no, no dogs, right, no dogs or no pets rule, we're going to allow one as an accommodation. Okay. A question about the modification, but I think you referenced this earlier. Um, can the association require the modifications be paid for by the uh, person making the request? Well, yes and no. Uh, the law is, is, I was going to say, all over the place on this issue, but it, what happens is HUD puts out these uh, guidance memoranda and question and answer kind of things, and they're 20 or 30 pages long, and they have hypothetical questions on what would be required. In our industry, most of those memoranda or guidance documents that are put out by HUD are for landlord-tenant issues. So what, what, who pays for what? Um, it used to be that the association would have to pay, or rather the, the unit owner would have to pay to a modification if it was for his or her unit only, meaning access to the front door, for instance, um, and only benefited that unit owner. And the association would have to pay if, uh, it, was if it was a common element and more people could access it, right? Uh, there have been various cases around the country that have differed on those interpretations. Uh, one thing that we determined recently was uh, you used to argue that the unit owner would have to remove at his or her expense the modification, even if it was put on a common element, but I think our interpretation... Removed, you mean when they left the community, correct, when they moved correct. out? Correct. Or, no, if they... I shouldn't say left. 
when they no longer use it. No longer needed. Okay. Right. And uh, recent, recently, we've come across guidance documents that would lead us to believe that, no, you can't, if other people are using it, it would be more difficult to argue that they have to pay to remove it. The association might be charged to remove it, especially if it's in a common area rather than right in front of the unit a for unit. the benefit of that. Right, okay. Right. So the moral of the story is uh, contact counsel on these very specific issues. So counsel can, you really have to be up to date on what the current status is of these HUD guidelines. So what other fair housing violations might associations encounter? We covered a lot of territory, but there must be others. Yeah, I touched on familial status before, uh, and that's when you treat people uh, differently because of their age, adults versus minors, and it can be viewed negatively to impact families with children. Uh, that's one that's coming out more frequently. Uh, again, the uh, Housing with Older Persons Act exempts associations that comply uh, from age age discrimination so, issues. So, so a question about like a adult swim time at a, at yeah. a pool in a, in a non-55 and older community, that, that's what you're talking about. Right. So the most commonly raised discrimination claims in associations with familial status are, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, pools. Uh, Adult-only areas are a problem for associations. It seems like a great idea but federal courts have held it to be discriminatory under FHA because it treats families with children different, if you can believe that. Required adult supervision, same issue. Uh, the premise you would assume would be, we want kids to be safe, right? Uh, we require adult supervision, but courts have held and invalidated requirements for supervision of minor swimmers under the premise that safety judgments about children's swimming ability are to be made by an informed parent or guardian, not someone else. So it sounds like there could be decisions made by board members or managers, poor decisions or uninformed decisions that could lead to fair housing claims uh, intentionally or otherwise. Uh, can you uh, sure. share some examples of that? Absolutely. So these are things that I've kind of extracted from uh, various opinions on fair housing claims that have been brought in federal court around the country. Uh, one is asking too many invasive questions about the disability asking for some very specific detail regarding the exact nature of a disability. Uh, I call it playing doctor, right? Uh, such as concluding the requesting owner can, quote, walk fine. So they, they can walk fine. Why do they need this? That's the kind of things that have gotten associations in hot water. Uh, insisting a medical doctor issue a letter of necessity and refusing to accept another provider, like a psychologist or a social worker. Associations have done that. Denying a request for a service dog on the basis that the animal's too big or exceeds a weight limit. Can't do that. Asking for a pet deposit. It's not a pet, remember? We started off with that. Uh, or prior to allowing a service or companion animal, and again, they can request or put in the approval that if the animal damages common facilities or common elements, that the unit owner will be responsible, that there's nothing wrong with that putting too many obstacles in front of a unit owner. So rejection after rejection after rejection, that's basically akin to the actual discrimination. Um, demanding that they bear the cost for a reasonable modification that the association should be responsible to pay, like if it would be parking signage or painted lines, something in the common area after making an accommodation, sometimes the courts will hold that the association's responsible putting unreasonable restrictions on service or companion animals, like not allowing them in the common areas. 
they're allowed in the common areas. Uh, passing unreasonable policies relating to children, so no bicycle riding on common elements. A lot of these things may seem silly, right? But these are, I've taken these directly from opinions. Implement, implementing pool rules which discriminate against families. Concluding a disability is not valid or, or good enough based on the false perception. Uh, adopting a policy or procedures that impact a protected class disproportionately. And a, this doesn't happen very often. Adopting a right of first refusal for the approval of, or sale for a purchase of a unit that impacts a protected class, that's probably more uh, relevant to a co-op. So in New York City, that would be probably more relevant. But in our industry, most of our documents don't have a right of first refusal. In fact, Fannie Mae and FHA, you really can't have a right of first refusal in order to qualify for mortgage financing uh, or mortgage insurance through those entities. This sounds like an awful lot of thorny issues that you just uh, mentioned in that list there. What can associations do best to deal with uh, fair housing issues and, uh, and avoid mistakes and, and problems? So these are best practices, as I would call them, and, and CAI would call them best practices. Uh, Self-serving one, number one, would be elicit the advice of counsel prior to denying an accommodation or modification request or handling any issue that may lead to a fair housing claim. Um, I've actually handled fair housing claims that have been brought where by the time it gets to me, it's been denied four times by the association without my knowledge. And then by the time I get it, it's too late. They file the claim. Uh, follow procedures set forth in governing documents related to due process and handling requests. Associations, a lot of times they blow it. They don't follow due process provisions. They don't give the people an opportunity to be heard. Uh, they don't actually handle the request like some other request that you would make for, let's say, for an ARC request. They just summarily deny it. Uh, so handle it appropriately under the documents. Act uniformly with all owners, meaning treat everyone the same and treat one person's request like the other's. Boards should adopt, repeal, and amend rules as necessary in order to comply with law. So uh, if there's a absolute prohibition for something that would conflict with federal law, you can change the rule. You can actually change the declaration. You can do a corrective amendment if it's, if it's contrary to, to law. Uh, boards act, must act within the scope of their authority in good faith, use ordinary care in the best interest of the community. Uh, managers shouldn't act under the authority of the board and make decisions denying or approving it's a board decision. Managers and boards should report discrimination claims immediately to counsel and their insurers, especially critical with uh, insurance because a lot of it could be notice-driven. The claims could be notice-driven, and the, the earlier the notice to the carrier, the better. Uh, adopt a policy on how to handle accommodation or modification requests and apply it uniformly and properly. So write up a policy and say, this is our policy now, and this is how we're going to handle everyone. And finally, communicate early and often with the owner requesting the accommodation or modification. Don't leave them in the dark, and don't unreasonably delay the request. Courts have held that associations that are, uh, don't respond, it's the same as discriminating against them. So keeping them in the dark, the people keep requesting the accommodation, do something about it. Act properly, give them the notice, say we're looking into it, and take proper action. Can't just ignore it and hope it's going to go away. Correct. Well, that's good advice, Ed. That's about all that we have time for today. I want to thank you for joining me and for answering these questions on the topic of fair housing in the community association. 
For those of you who may want more information on this topic, you can find Ed's contact information at his website, www.barrowhoffman.com. For more resources on this and other topics regarding the management or governance of your condominium, cooperative, or homeowners association, please contact CAI or visit our website at www.cai-padelval.org. Thank you for listening.